He is risen. Amen. Isn't that great news? Uh, you know, I wonder sometimes, I wonder if the church just at times just said those words and then just kind of went on the, on the rest of the day. Just like, that's enough. It's enough to know that um, he died in our place and then he rose again to give us new life. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. My name is Monty. I'm the other teaching pastor. It's great to see you guys here. Uh, great to have you guys joining us online. And uh, maybe there's a few brave souls out there in the tents, a little brisk this morning, but I hope they're out there as well. Um, as I thought about resurrection, we're in Luke 24, 1 through 12, perfect timing. How about that? Um, but we're going to talk about resurrection this morning, and the word that came to my mind was surprise, and especially with this passage in mind, and I thought life is full of surprises, isn't it? So as a student, I remember these words, you passed, surprise, that's pretty exciting, very encouraging. Um, how about this one, uh, will you marry me, right? That's a big surprise. Um, we've heard this a few times now recently with our adult children. We're pregnant. What a surprise. That's awesome. Um, sold a few houses over the years. When you hear those words, they took your offer, especially right now, right? In the seller's market. Um, maybe some of you have heard these words recently. You're hired. That might have been the best surprise ever in light of the year that we've had. Um, we've had a lot of painful surprises. Surprise, the lights went out. <laughs> Hopefully those will return. I'm just going to keep moving. Um, had some painful surprises. Positive COVID tests. Quarantines. Closed businesses. Lost jobs. Even the loss of family or friends. Um, March 1st, I got a phone call, had a phone call with my mom. And it was awesome. Such a sweet. I got to say some things to her. I didn't even realize how important those things would be. But man, it was just awesome. So that's uh, Monday morning. Monday afternoon, my sister called and said my mom had fallen and they had rushed her to the hospital. Monday evening, I got another call that said she probably wouldn't survive. So my uh, wife and I, Kimberly and I, uh, booked the earliest flight we could Tuesday morning, hopped on a plane, flew out there, arrived at my mom's bedside at 10.30. She was still alive, unconscious. But I sat at her bedside and I grabbed her hand and and got to tell her again just how much I loved her and how, uh, how much admiration and appreciation I had for her. I got to say goodbye, and at 11.45, she took her last breath. What a surprise. What a surprise. Easter weekend is about death and life, right? We celebrated the death of Christ on Friday, tried to somehow put ourselves in that place of confusion and 
potentially despair. Imagine what all those people were feeling. And then this morning, we get to celebrate what was probably the greatest surprise in all of human history. If you haven't already, go to uh, Luke 24, verse 1. Death and life begins this way. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, that was the women, uh, went to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared. Now, as I think about these women going to the tomb, I think about all that they must have been processing, thinking about the gruesome death that they had experienced and how that defied everything that they had expected. And so they're going to a tomb expecting to find um, a dead Jesus. And I thought, you know, death confronts us with a lot of things, doesn't it? It is a disruption. It is the worst of surprises, but it's very instructive. Um, I do a lot of my thinking through a pen. And so I wanted to read to you something that I wrote just three days after my mom's death. And uh, this is me thinking about death and life. It's Friday morning. My mom died Tuesday. Everything in me wants to infuse that reality with peace and joy both of which are surely there without acknowledging the dark disruption that is death. It is, after all, the consequence of humanity's rebellion against God, sin. Temporally, it is the end of life. Breathing stops, the heart stops, and the light of life is extinguished. Death violates everything that we were created for. Relationships, growth, creativity faithfulness. Death is dark, evil, and malicious. Thankfully, God is not bound by it. Rather, death dutifully serves his sovereign purposes in wrath and redemption. What the world, the flesh, and the devil meant for evil, the Lord can and does use for good. I refuse to sanitize death and make it out to be something sweet. It is not. But for those who are in Christ, it has no sting. It is but a light momentary affliction preparing, us, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The peace we associate with death is the absence of struggle and pain, and sadness, fear, and suffering. And for that, we can give thanks. But for the living, we must bear the grief of loss. I'm truly sad that I'll not get to sit with my mom again in this life. I'm truly grateful for the sweetness of our relationship at the end as compared to earlier years. All was mended thanks to the grace and mercy of God. He has been kind to us and he has been our help. May the Lord continue his good work in our broken family until he returns to make all things new once and for all. Death and life, full of surprises. I want to give you a backdrop for this moment that these women are experiencing. Jeff took us through this just last week in verse 54. It was the day of preparation 
Luke writes, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid, and they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So in Jewish culture, uh, Friday was what they called a day of preparation where they would get everything ready for the following day, which would be the Sabbath, a day of rest where you did nothing but be together as family and worship your God. And so they were going through those motions, but (laughs) Jesus was just crucified. So imagine trying to fit that into your traditions of preparation and Sabbath. But they did that. We learned from John 19 that uh, there were some things going on to get Jesus buried before the Sabbath. Let me read that to you, John 19, 38. After these things, the crucifixion and all of that, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus for burial. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. We learn elsewhere that's the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid him there. So that's the backdrop to these women taking a walk early Sunday morning at daybreak to go and bring additional spices to the tomb of Jesus. Now here's why that's important. There is no question at all that Joseph, Nicodemus, and those women knew Jesus was dead. Now, the only reason I say that is because there are literally people who will say, somehow, Jesus didn't really die. And so that's why we have an empty tomb. Somehow he was able to go through all of the uh, abuse and the horrific what they called interrogation, and then hangs on a cross for hours. And somehow he survived all that and made his way out of a tomb. It's called the apparent death theory. There is no question that that could be nothing but a lie. So I just want you to know these ladies are making their way to the tomb to find a dead Jesus. Now let's pick up in verse 2. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the Lord Jesus. Interesting, uh, Luke uses a kind of a cool word thing here. They found something. This gigantic stone rolled away from the entrance of the tomb. And they didn't find the body of Jesus, the very thing that they were looking for. What a surprise. I'm sure they're confused. I'm sure they don't know what to do. That, 
that stone, we're told in Mark 16, was so large, so massive that they were asking one another, how how are we going to get that thing out of the way so that we can put these spices onto uh, Jesus' body? And lo and behold, the stone is moved. And then when they look inside, Jesus isn't there. Now, I guess what is surprising to us, but we very well would have thought the same thing, is what happened? Like They should have known what happened. We're going to find that out in just a minute. But nevertheless, they're trying to figure it out. It reminds me of a great resource that um, is available to us today. It's called Cold Case Christianity. It's a guy named J. Warner Wallace. He's an investive Uh, uh, investigative detective and he specializes in cold cases and he took all that he knows about investigation and applied it to the empty tomb and so he gives all these principles about how do you go about figuring out what happened and he came to the conclusion he rose from the dead so great resource but these ladies could have used some of that as they were going through They end up getting a little bit of help. Look at verse 4. It says, While they were perplexed about this, this whole scene, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. The surprises just keep coming. Verse 5, And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Why do you seek the living, and actually it would be better, the living one among the dead? What a great question. Why do any of us look for living things among dead things? I bet every person in this room can think of something that they go after in search of life in search of fulfillment, in search of joy and peace and all the things that God promises. But those places where we're looking are deader than a doornail. And these angels are asking the ladies, you know, you came here and you're looking for the living among the dead. He's not here. He has risen. Literally, um, and this is important, literally, uh, he is raised by God. It's a thing called a theological passive. It just means that Jesus was raised. Something was done for him. The Father intervened because his sacrifice was satisfactory. So the Father raised him up. It's sort of like Resurrection is one more instance of the father saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So I raise him up because my wrath is satisfied. And now forgiveness is available to all of humanity because of what my son did. That's what happened here. He is raised by God. His sacrifice is approved. The angels, seeing that the ladies are perplexed in verse 6, he says, Remember, remember how he told you 
while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and rise on the third day. Jesus said, remember, or the angel said, remember that Jesus told you he must be betrayed, crucified, buried, and rise again. Some references for you in Luke 9. He says uh, those very words. Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? Remember that moment where he's asking his disciples, who do all these people say that I am? And he finally comes around to Peter. Peter said, you're the Christ of God. And then Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and priests and scribes and be killed. Jesus said this to his men and to these ladies. They were there. Betrayed, rejected, killed, and on the third day be raised. Said it again in 934 through 45 and then again in 1831 through 34. The angels are saying, remember what he said to you. This shouldn't be a surprise. This should be a celebration. This should be exactly what you expected based on what God had told you. One little interesting thing here. After Jesus tells his disciples what they should expect, he says these words. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Challenging words, but those words put the death, burial, and resurrection in great perspective for all of us. Christ did not die and rise so that you and I could have the life we always wanted. Jeff said last week or the week before something about following your heart. Jesus didn't die and rise so that you could follow your heart. Jesus died and rose again so that you and I could have the life that he wants for us. That's the gift. And what better gift could there be in a broken, sin-wrecked world than the life that God wants for us? I tell you what, when we forget what Jesus said, then we miss what he wants for us. And we end up seeking life in graveyards. Is there any place in your life where you are currently forgetting what Jesus has said? And are you living contrary to what he has revealed? Well, these ladies are getting some perspective. They're beginning to uh, respond. We get to verse 8, and uh, we see them in a great dilemma in their little community of faith. Verse 8, it says, They remembered his words, so went... Don't you know it when the angels said they're like, oh, yeah, I do remember that. How about that? 
uh, they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they told all of these things to the eleven, the disciples, and to all the rest. So there, apparently there were others there with them. Verse 10, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, the Mary, uh, Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them, that is the apostles, an idle tale. And they did not believe them. The women mentioned there, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James. Uh, Mary Magdalene had been delivered from the ravages of demonic possession by Jesus. It's a beautiful scene. By the way, if you haven't seen The Chosen, the scene where she is delivered by Jesus is one of the most powerful things I've ever seen. It's just amazing. Joanna was the wife of Herod's household manager, King Herod. This is the wife of his household manager. And then Mary of Clopas was the mother of James the Less, one of the other disciples. Interesting. These are the women that we're told traveled with Jesus from Galilee. And in that culture, it's horrible, but women were just kind of looked at as second-class citizens, inferior. And isn't it awesome (laughs) that God chooses to elevate, just circumstantially elevate these women even above the disciples in this moment because they're the first witnesses of the resurrection. Isn't that awesome? Now, I'm sure they felt incredible like excitement, anticipation, all of that. But don't you know they also felt some fear? So their testimony meant nothing. In a court of law, women were just disregarded. So they're going to go back and be, quote, witnesses. They're going to give testimony to the 11, God's men, these 11 guys that have been around with Jesus for three years. They're going to bring this testimony back to them. And what do they get? As I mentioned in your notes, this is a tough crowd. They considered the words of the angels and the empty tomb as an idle tale. Literally, that was a medical term for hysteria or fever-induced hallucinations. They're like, it's just a bunch of nonsense. Imagine what that must have felt like to those ladies. Here are the foremost followers of Jesus Christ, his chosen men. And they consider this report nonsense. They also have forgotten what Jesus said to them about his future. I wonder for you, um, what part of the Christian story may seem like an idle tale. Now, I know we think lots of stuff, but the best way to know is by walking around with you, like following. How do you live your life? Because that starts to show how much of this Christian story we have really absorbed and applied to our life. Now, we all struggle probably with some confusion or doubts about things. There's hard things in our Bible. Life is hard. It's hard to reconcile suffering and pain and all that with a God who is good and kind and gracious. 
It's hard sorting that out. But the Bible is our witness. So here's how you work this out. The Bible is like those ladies coming to you saying, this is what's true. This is what has been revealed. And you and I got to just come to terms with, are we willing to accept what the Bible says about God and about life and about us, about everything? Our faith is based on revelation, God choosing to speak. It's also based on reality, rational reality, and it is reasonable. You can't prove anything in our Bible that our Bible claims beyond any shadow of a doubt, but that's not the point. Faith requires us to to look at all the information that we can and then by faith reach some kind of conclusion. So think with me here for a minute. If Jesus of Nazareth were not a real person, and some of these claims are made and have been made for maybe centuries, if he didn't say and do the things that the scriptures say he said, and did, if he wasn't crucified and buried, if there was no empty tomb, if that, that didn't exist, if there were no appearances after his burial, all of these things the, the Bible speaks of, don't you think there were hundreds, if not thousands of people who would have come along and said, listen, there was no Jesus, there was no burial, there was no tomb he, he didn't do any miracles like there were plenty of people. But we see just the opposite. We see Christianity just exploding and under great persecution. What can that mean? If any person or group stole the body of Jesus, that's another theory about how we get an empty tomb. Don't you think they would have produced it once the disciples start going, resurrection, resurrection? Never happened. If the disciples stole the body, what do you think they would have done when they've got a spear at their gut saying, tell us the truth? Yeah, he... We took it. <laughs> we took it, man. Seriously. I'm not, I'm not dying for this. Didn't happen. How do you explain the Apostle Paul? Once the persecutor of the church to the most prolific church planter in all of history. Here's the question for us. Do our lives reflect a deep, steadfast conviction that what the Bible says happened, happened? And if it doesn't, it's okay today, but don't leave it there. I would say if you wrestle or struggle with doubt, which is common for all of humanity, then do what Peter did. He's always kind of going against the flow, right? So he hears the testimony of the ladies. He probably thinks this is an idle tale. 
But in verse 12, it says, he rose and ran to the tomb. If you have doubts and struggles, if you're wrestling with something, run to the tomb. Because it's empty. And then sit there a while and ask the Lord to help you put it together. Like what happened there? And what difference does that make in your life? Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, it's so funny, and I love this about the Bible. If somebody were writing it to try and make a bestseller or something, you know, they probably wouldn't put stuff like that. Because what would be great is if Peter went to the tomb and saw that it was empty and did backflips and freaked out and went, He is risen! He didn't. He, he looked in there. I'm sure he was baffled. He's like, okay, well, what the lady said was true, but how did that happen? Where did he go? Who's got him? And it says he went home marveling, which isn't like, you know, praising God and singing hymns. It was literally he's scratching his head going, man, what is going on here? Because I know he died. And now he's gone. So if you run to the tomb, you may not experience an immediate, like everything aligns, but stay there and marvel like Peter did. Here's where Peter ends up just weeks later. This is Acts 2. He's surrounded by Jews, all of whom think that Jesus was a farce. And he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty deeds and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. That's Peter. Loosing the pangs of death because of it was not possible for him to be held by it. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are witnesses. Now, by this time, Peter had seen the risen Christ. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. That's what we get to say over and over and over and over again. And not just with our words, but with our very lives. We get to declare that he has arisen. As one author wrote, the apparent end was a new beginning. And I, honestly, that's where I wanted to finish this morning. I try to remind myself almost daily of new beginnings. Because guys, I need them. And I think you do too. There's a great passage in Romans 6 that talks about new beginnings. I just want to read two verses to you and talk about it for a second. Paul writes, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, 
just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, if the resurrection doesn't happen, there is no newness of life. But because it has, you and I have new life every day. Lamentations talks about new mercies every morning. Just in those two verses, we get an assurance that the death of Christ satisfied the wrath of God. We get to walk with assurance. And just just to make sure there's no confusion, being baptized into Christ, that's an identification. Baptism, as we teach here, is a symbol of an outward picture of an inward reality. So this is just to be identified with him. And if you are, you have great assurance. You also have great enablement. I love how the scriptures talk about the same power that raised Christ from the dead is in you. So whatever your struggle is, whatever your hardship, whatever suffering, whatever enduring you need to make, You have the power to do that. The same power that brought Jesus back to life. And then finally, there is great joy, even in the midst of great loss. Because our joy is in a future where sin and death will be no more. And the resurrection is your guarantee. Honestly, the big surprise in all of this is that God would be so kind to do this for enemy rebels. A couple of questions to wrap up. Have you been, as Paul writes, baptized into Christ Jesus? Have you identified with him? Have you come to him with empty hands? only full of faith and said, I need you to do for me what I can't do for myself. That is the only way that you or anyone goes from death to life. Is finally you come to the end of yourself and you just say, Jesus, will you forgive me? I I need for your sacrifice on the cross to pay for my sin. And God says, if you'll do that, you are forgiven. Just like he said to that Thief on the cross next to him. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. For those of you who have identified with Christ, entrusted your life to Christ, here's your question for today. What form of newness do you need? Because that's what the resurrection offers you. Newness of life. And not just a concept to agree with, Not just something to to shout an amen to, but something to literally live in. New faith, new freedom, new desires, new direction, new priorities, new habit. What kind of newness do you need today? The resurrection verifies, guarantees that you can have that kind of newness by grace through faith in the risen Christ. I'll give you a moment to answer that question. 
we call it so what and whatever change that might need to take place in your life that may seem daunting to you but I want to ask you this do you believe that the resurrection should transform your life any less than it did all of those folks early on who just couldn't make sense of an empty tomb radically changed their lives and he can radically change yours and mine take a moment ask the Lord what is that form of newness in life that you need Jesus to say thank you seems so trite but what else can we say Lord thank you for laying down your life so that we could have life thank you Holy Spirit for indwelling us so that we could walk in newness of life and I pray Father for everyone in the sound of my voice for myself, Lord, help us to walk in a manner worthy of this calling that you've given us. We thank you for the assurance of the empty tomb. And Lord, would you use us to share that great news with everyone that we can until you return. I pray that in Jesus' name.